0: My name is Anna Lieberman. You're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network.
1: From the Emerald Podcast Network and KWVA, you're listening to This Oregon Life. This week, we're looking at the world of imaginary friends.
2: I'm Francisca Monaghan, and this is Emerson Malone. Emerson, did you ever have an imaginary friend growing up?
1: You know, I didn't actually, but I remember my sister did, and I remember one time she said she told her imaginary friend to go jump off the Empire State Building, and then, like a week later, the imaginary friend came back in a wheelchair.
2: That's pretty intense.
1: Let that one be the only impression you have of my family. <laughs>
2: Well, it did explains you, a bit.
1: Did you ever have one?
2: Um, yeah, I had I had a few. Um they were all woodland creatures that lived in my backyard in Northern California. The most prominent one was Squirrel, who was a giant squirrel, and he had a sister named Squirrel Sister. And he also had a cousin who was kind of a jerk whose name was squirrel Kid. And then there was also like Blacktail Rip, who was a blacktail deer, but he wasn't as important.
1: Got a forest <laughs> entourage.
2: Yeah. Snow White.
1: Were your parents worried at all, or what did they think?
2: Actually, um, to this day, my dad still really likes to talk about squirrel. Like, he would interact with the squirrel. I don't know. It was like he, like, played into the game a little.
1: Was it, like, a real squirrel or made up?
2: It was a giant made up squirrel. Like, like it was taller than me. It was, like, a grown up sized squirrel, you know? (laughs) Anyway.
1: So our story today takes place here on campus. There's a psychology professor over in Straub Hall. Her name is Dr. Marjorie Taylor. She's retired now, but she's written a book.
2: It's a lavender-colored book with a picture of a small girl in the front, and she's serving a spoon of what looks like applesauce to an empty chair seated next to her. So the implication is that she's feeding it to her imaginary friend.
1: The title is?
2: Imaginary Companions and the Children Who Create Them.
1: So Dr. Taylor came to the University of Oregon in 1985. She published her first paper on imaginary friends in 1993. And the thing you have to realize is, at the time, the study of childhood imagination didn't really play a big role in psychology textbooks. Like, there would only be a small sidebar that would reference pretend play, even though, according to a study from 2004, 65% of children claim to have had an imaginary friend. And so that study was conducted by psychologists at the University of Washington and then here at the U of O.
2: So Dr. Taylor's lab is over in Straub Hall here on the University of Oregon campus, and it's called the Imagination Research Lab.
1: The IRL.
2: The families that participate in these studies generally come from the Eugene-Springfield area. And Dr. Taylor says around 75 to 80% of what's known about imaginary companions comes from research
3: at the U of O. So I was interested in that idea that there are things going on in children's minds and do they understand that those aren't shared with other people. So I started, I thought I'd just start looking into it and uh, I started doing the research and then I realized just really basic questions like how many kids have them, what are the imaginary friends like, uh, what's the trajectory, what are the characteristics of children who have imaginary friends versus those who don't. All those questions need to be answered. So I started just interviewing kids about their imaginary friends and then once you start doing that you're hooked forever. Then you go down the rabbit
1: hole. So families from the Eugene Springfield area would come in to talk about imaginary friends and the parents and children would be taken into separate rooms.
2: Like they're being cross-examined in a police interrogation.
3: Right. Uh, part of what we do is interview them about imaginary friends and we interview both of them And then we cross-check the information and then we follow up any kind of inconsistencies Because lots of times parent tells you one thing the child says something else So yeah. you want to figure out what's going on there uh, And sometimes it's because the child uses a different name. So when you say You know do you have a pretend friend? They say no And then the parent says well ask about her ghost sister you go and say, would well, you have a ghost sister? Yes, her name is Olivia.
2: <laughs> and the families came to the lab with anything from benign interest in their child's imaginary friend to genuine anxiety about what an imaginary
3: friend meant. Uh, some of them just think it's the most wonderful thing in the world and it shows that their child is incredibly creative and you know, going to go on to be create masterpieces of some sort or another. Right. In literature, other parents find it kind of cute and funny Uh, but you know they don't think it means that much other parents uh, think well it's okay but you know I don't want to encourage it too much and other parents say, does it what does it mean about my child do they have a some kind of deficit and then we have had parents who have said I pray every day for the devil to leave my child and that is a direct quote I mean
1: someone said that about their child oh my god (laughs)
2: So how do you talk to kids about imaginary friends as a psychologist anyway? Aren't they a little unreliable? I mean, anyone who's talked to a five or six year old knows that it's impossible to keep them in one conversation.
1: Right. So that's the interesting thing. So the Imagination Research Lab, Dr. Marjorie Taylor, and the undergraduate and graduate students who worked with her sort of brought like a clinical scientific approach to something as sort of fickle as childhood whimsy. And like you said, there's nothing keeping them from stretching the truth, inventing some grand story about their imaginary friend on the spot. The weird thing about interviewing children about their imaginary friends is that you need to hold them accountable about this being that even they realize and will recognize and openly admit is imaginary. But the thing is you can't laugh or even smile, even look amused, because then it'll just like throw fuel on the fire and encourage them to stretch the truth and say whatever. Franny, did you see Inside Out, the Pixar movie? Do you remember the character Bing Bong? Wait,
3: I know you. No, you don't. I
1: get that a lot. I look like a lot of people. No, 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 I do! <gasps> Bing Bong! <gasps> Riley's imaginary friend! Yeah, yeah. He was the sort of, like, pink-elephant, cat-hybrid imaginary friend.
2: Way cooler than Squirrel.
1: We'll talk about it. Anyway, apparently whenever an imaginary friend appears in pop culture, Dr. Taylor's called up to provide some expert testimony. So last summer, after Inside Out was released, Slate Magazine interviewed her to give her take on Bing Bong. But if you think about it, Inside Out was sort of an anomaly, since there aren't a lot of movies out there that portray imaginary friends as a component of a child's mental health. Most of them just use imaginary friends as nefarious little goobers that indicate mental illness.
3: I think that imaginary friends are really fun. They're a a storytelling device, a vehicle for storytelling, and children love to tell stories. And The Imaginary Friend gets to be their own vehicle like other people don't know. They're the expert, you know, on what's going on in the world of The Imaginary Friend. You know, the movie The Shining and all these other movies that come out that have really nasty imaginary friends or, or children, really troubled children who have them. And he's not here, Mrs. Torrance.
1: Have you seen The Shining, by the way?
2: Oh, boy. I saw The Shining at a third-grade sleepover party. Wake up.
3: You just had a bad dream. Everything's okay.
2: Danny can't wake up, Mrs. Torrance. That was terrible.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Questionable choice for third-graders. Did you just think, oh, this obviously a, a little kid is the main character will relate to this? I
2: I think the parent like offered it as an option, ironically, and all the kids were like, "The Shining," because the alternative was like the Sword and the Stone or whatever. So.
1: And then you get to the part where it's Jack Nicholson being like, "Give me the bat, give me the bat, Wendy." Wendy,
3: give me the bat. Wait! Give me-, give me the bat. Stop it!
0: Give me the bat.
1: I think that's how it went down. One point that Dr. Taylor made was that more often than not, she said movies conflate imaginary friends with mental illnesses, like in the 1991 movie Drop Dead Fred. Have you seen that one?
2: Unfortunately. Like
1: many small children, Lizzie had an imaginary playmate.
0: Drop Dead Fred is going to teach me how to cook
2: today. Someone she could talk to. Sugar? Yeah. <gasps> Someone she could share with. Oh, Grandma Bun! Someone who would never let her down.
3: No more Drop Dead Fred! Period! It's, well, it's not a good movie, but Drop Dead Fred, that's the name of an imaginary friend. And really, with an imaginary friend like that, you don't need enemies. It was a horrible imaginary friend. And also, just, um, really obnoxious, and, and the depiction was bad. I don't mm-hmm. know if there's... And the basically, when she 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 was an adult and she started being visited by her imaginary friend from her childhood, and so she went to a psychiatrist about that, and they talked about neutralizing the part of the brain that creates the imaginary friend.
1: You know. <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> yeah,
3: it was horrible. What a horrible movie.
1: I really think it's funny whenever movies take liberties, like really, really bombastic liberties with science and the idea of neutralizing the part of the brain that creates an imaginary friend. We could do that with you anyway. <laughs> oh, sometimes, <Ow. laughs> sometimes imaginary friends are just an extension of a child's insecurities. Um, and they serve, they serve as an alibi of projecting the fear elsewhere. Dr. Taylor mentioned another study about a child who is afraid of going down a bathtub drain, but instead of expressing that worry, that child just sort of extends it to the imaginary friend to just put it out there, see if that fear is valid or not. Or say you're you're afraid of dogs, you have a new neighbor who just moves in next door, has a big Labrador dog, the kid could say their imaginary friend is afraid of the dog and see what people think about that.
2: It kind of helps when you think about Calvin and Hobbes. You see, Calvin likes Susie, but can't admit it to himself because he's a six-year-old boy and girls are icky. So he just projects that feeling onto Hobbes.
1: Exactly. But it's not always an amicable relationship between the child and the imaginary companion. Like Calvin and Hobbes, Buds for Life, but sometimes an imaginary friend can take on an adversarial nature as like a tormentor who can annoy and bully the child.
3: They're annoying, they, they show up when you don't want them, they won't go away when you, <laughs> they put yogurt in your hair, they're always saying bad words and have to be put in timeouts they're, um, you know, they're, they have a lot of, of characteristics that are negative. Right. And we, we did a study one time where we just asked well how many of them are like that and I'm trying to remember how many were really sort of nasty and argumentative and it was a high proportion of them like uh, something like 20 percent of them were, that was the primary thing. Overall? That. Um, of these kids, of the imaginary friends, like 20% yeah. of them were, so about, uh, I think, I can't, I'm not remembering the exact proportions, but um, a lot of them were kind of compliant and nice, and then there kids who, you know, they were mostly compliant and nice, but they sometimes got on your nerves, and they would bug you, and they would, you know, they'd do stuff, you know, whatever. And then there's the kids, the imaginary friends, that were mostly just bossy <laughs> and the drag. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, there was a lot of them like that. It was surprising.
1: So Marjorie's working on a second edition of the book. It'll include other components of her research, like the more recent stuff she's investigated around world building. Last year, she put out her first paper on paracosms, which is an imaginary world created by a child. It can have its own characters, but it can also be an intricate society with its own transportation system, journalism, politics, wars, treaties, you name it. So one of the case studies that she used was a pair of planets called Abixia and Rontuia. Would you mind explaining what Abixia and Rontuia are?
2: I would love to. So these two little boys created these two planets, Abixia and Rontuia. Abixia is a primitive sort of minimalist nation with its own religious festivals, currency, and dialect, which apparently has elements of Arabic, French, and Latin. Rontuia, on the other hand, is a more futuristic society with its own transportation system and immigration laws. It was originally just one planet that the boys conceived of during the second grade, but they eventually got into a fight, as little boys are apt to do, over who was in control. And so that caused the split into two planets.
1: Dual custody.
2: And both Abixia and Rontuia, this is my favorite part, are inhabited...
1: Wait for it.
2: By soldier cats, who worship...
1: They worship a horse god named Abix. And so Marjorie published the first of four papers on imaginary worlds last year.
3: It was really just our first attempt to try to figure out how to get the information from kids because they have been working on these imaginary worlds for years. They are extremely complicated and detailed. So we had to come up with an interview technique where we could get to the important parts for that child's imaginary friend. So we developed this strategy and we did some case studies where we really got a lot of information. And so at the height of it, these kids would get together sort of like at their own Dungeons & Dragons or something, you know, these, this uh, game that they would play together. And it was very, you know, engrossing for them and emotional and they would have fights and they would have treaties and conflicts and you know, alliances and all this kind of stuff with these different imaginary worlds. So we interviewed the kids who did Eviction and Rontuia Uh, And for Abixia, the child who did Abixia, he was very interested in Swiss army knives. So Swiss army knives were um, sacred on Abixia, sacred objects. And they had to go on pilgrimages to planet Earth, to Switzerland, to collect them, to bring them back. But because they are set in the 1940s, they didn't have the interplanetary travels. They had to negotiate with Rontuja, which was set in the future, because they had the ability to interplanetary travel. They do that even though the, the soldier cats in Ronturi and, and did not like each other.
1: And another part of Marjorie's recent research looks at the relationship between fiction authors and the characters within their novels. This included interviews with 50 fiction writers based in Eugene, as well as interviews with authors like Philip Pullman, he's the guy who wrote The Golden Compass, and detective writer Tony Hillerman. And this led Marjorie to the concept of the illusion of independent agency, which is the idea that characters can often be difficult and non-compliant to their author's wishes.
3: And it was really fascinating, but I realized that the nature of their character depended upon the personality of the writer, the personality of the character, and what they were trying to do in the book. So if they're in a detective novel, then there's a script they have to go to by. But if they're in sort of a more free-floating, character-driven thing, then there's not a lot of conflict because they just go with what the character wants. Um, so it was kind of... so, th- But there will be a chapter in the edition you know, like of about these famous authors because they were amazing.
1: A few years ago, there was a study that the Imagination Research Lab did with children who were growing up in the foster care system, to see what kind of effect these imaginary friends had on those who experienced early life adversity and a rough upbringing.
0: So one of the girls that I interviewed in the foster care study, um, she was a little girl who had been in like 11 different foster homes um, before she was adopted into um, her lifelong family. And she told me about an imaginary companion that was a milk carton.
2: So who is that?
1: That's Dr. Naomi Aguiar. She's a postdoc student who worked in Marjorie's lab for nine years. She took part in the study with foster care children.
2: And what I asked
0: um, about what she liked about this milk carton, she she told me, you know, I really like that he's not human um, because he can teach me about what it means, like what it's like to not be human. And I can teach him about what it's like to be
1: human. Wow. (laughs) Um, That's profound.
2: How old were these kids?
1: Most of them were 8 to 11. Oldest was 14.
2: And they still had imaginary friends at that age?
1: Apparently. So basically what they found was that imaginary companions from children within that study were a lot like other types of imaginary companions. They weren't that different. We
0: just found that the imaginary companions that children who had lived in the foster care system had experienced, what they created for themselves was actually like really... Like, great
2: friends and
1: allies. Then there was another study in which they looked at at at-risk kids roughly aged 12.
2: What do you mean by at-risk, exactly?
1: These are the kind of kids who don't exactly have a bright future ahead of them, getting in fights, hanging with the wrong crowd, experimenting with drugs. Kind of like how you grew up, Franny.
0: Right. They weren't looking that good. You know, right. they were rejected by their peers. They weren't doing that well in school. The one thing that they had going for them was that they seemed to be endorsing better coping strategies, more adaptive coping strategies for dealing with problems than the rest of their peers. It was those kids with the current imaginary companions that were actually faring a lot better. And so in that particular context, what that suggests is that, you know, if you're a bunch of if you're in a group of a bunch of peers who are engaging in very high risk behaviors and are at risk for um, poor developmental outcomes, maybe not being friends with them is actually a good thing. Maybe being rejected by your peers is a good thing if you can create a sense of social support for yourself through your imagination.
1: So one of the things Dr. Aguiar said was, it was those kids with the imaginary companions that were actually doing a lot better when they came back to them at age 18. So if you had an imaginary friend at age 12, you were more likely to be part of the group that was doing well at age 18. So this meant, basically, maybe being rejected by your friends is a good thing if you can create a sense of social support through your imagination.
2: Interesting.
1: So Dr. Aguiar's specific focus within this whole field is in the relationship between children and the virtual characters that they interact with in video games, on apps, anything on a screen, and whether those count as an imaginary companion. So during the foster care study, there's another little boy that Naomi had interviewed.
0: I told him the definition of an imaginary companion. And I said, you know, do you have an imaginary companion? And he paused and he said to me, he asked me, does an imaginary companion count if it's on a video game?
3: Interesting. And I
0: was like, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was the beginning of, all the
1: rest of it. And one of the interesting things that Naomi and I talked about was that there's kind of a dead end when it comes to making friends with characters in an app or in a game or just these artificially intelligent beings. She said they're kind of limited by their programming, so you can't really have a super deep relationship with them. So we're not likely going to have relationships like Joaquin Phoenix in the movie Her. At least I'm saying this right now in 2016.
2: Like Hello Barbie.
1: Like Hello Barbie.
2: Barbie, So, Hello Barbie was this Barbie doll that came out last year, and she had a Siri inside of her. The doll was supposed to learn about you and remember who you were so it could have conversations with you.
1: And the more you talk to it, the more it would remember, in theory.
2: My sister Chelsea has just started collecting shells.
0: We spend hours at the beach finding just the right ones. What about you? Do you collect anything? I collect Barbies. <laughs> Nothing beats a good doll collection. What kind of dolls do you
2: have? Yeah, when they came out last December, there was so much media hype around this doll. It was retailed at $127.
1: And Dr. Aguiar said she bought one earlier this summer for $12.99. Ouch. Which is basically the price of a regular Barbie doll.
0: I mean there was a lot of other things about it that were problematic I, I i collected some you know anecdotal data from some some you know young adolescent girls about this i think they were like around 11 or 12 and i asked them about hello barbie and if you could be friends with siri and they're like oh yeah you could totally be friends with siri what do you mean you don't talk to siri I talk to siri all the time blah 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 but then they were saying oh but what if hello barbie got hacked
1: oh no yeah.
0: And then they had all of these conversations about cyber security, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it was like really interesting. And I was like, oh my gosh, like you're an 11 year old girl and they're talking about cybersecurity and having their Barbie doll get hacked.
1: So this is a pretty dense topic. We could take this to Rontui and two back, but that's all we have time for today. For KWVA and the Emerald Podcast Network. This is This Oregon Life. I'm Emerson Malone.
2: And I'm Francisca Monahan.
1: And I'm Giant Squirrel. Our show today was produced by Francisca Monahan and myself. Our music was written by Ben Stone King. If you want to learn more about the Imagination Research Lab, just enter those words into the search bar at dailyemerald.com.
2: Thanks for listening.
1: Bye.